0: Let's bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you. We thank you for the blessings of this week and for this day. We pray that what we do during this time would be pleasing to you, that we would strive daily to be more perfect in your ways as we're called to do in your word. We pray that we would strive harder to set an example to be like your Son, our Savior, Yahshua the Messiah, and we Pray that your blessings would be upon all those here, would be upon those listening and watching. We pray that be upon all those worshiping you in spirit and truth. We know there's others worshiping you today beyond us. We pray that you'd be with your people no matter where they're at. And we thank you for all the blessings and we give you all praise. And we ask all this in Yahshua's beloved name. Hallelujah. Well, y'all may be seated. It is a blessing to see everybody here today and. Like to extend a uh, welcome to uh, also greetings to those watching online, and uh, we have a few missing, still uh, with family and whatnot. So we would uh, certainly wish them also safe travels as they travel back home here in Holt Summit. Where well, today I want to speak about one of the most important kings in Israel's history, maybe one of the most confusing and perplexing kings as well. Whereas well, we know Solomon's life was marked by both triumph, and great triumph, and also tragedy. You know, in many ways, I I believe he serves as a great example to us. Things to do, things to embrace, and also things to avoid. You know, from a young man, we know that he sought for Yahweh's guidance. He sought for Yahweh's acceptance. He wanted to do right. And we see many, many examples of this throughout Scripture, we also know that he was a writer. He wrote several books, including Proverbs, much of Proverbs. He also wrote Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. You know, for those who know me, know that Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books. It's just so much wisdom, so much wisdom in that one book. I truly believe that if we would take heart and understand Ecclesiastes and live, live by those words, you know, we would just save ourselves so much trouble and understand really the intent and purpose. conclusion of life and why we're here, what we should be doing as believers. Now, in addition to his many successes, we also know that Solomon's life was one of tragedy, one of failure in many ways. He fell short near the end, and we're going to talk more about that as we get through this message, how in the end he really went astray, went astray. And I hope but maybe Yahweh will show some mercy, and we'll talk more about that as we get through this message. So again, today we're gonna to consider the rise and fall of King Solomon, one of the most perplexing, one of the most one of the most um, intriguing kings in Israel's history. So I want to begin today with 2nd Samuel, 2 Samuel 12, 24 through 25. It's real intriguing many people don't realize Solomon actually received two names. For the one we know, many don't know the other. So it says, and David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in unto her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And Yahweh loved him and sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah because of Yahweh. So we see here that Solomon was the offspring of King David and. Bathsheba. Remember, it was Bathsheba who David committed adultery with. We know that scripturally. But even though he did this horrible thing, we find here that Yahweh still blessed Solomon and Bathsheba with a son, Solomon. You know, this shows, I believe, the forgiving nature of our Father in heaven. You know, some people, they look at Yahweh in the Old Testament, they have this crude idea that he was one of vindictiveness. But we find here something very different. We find here, even though the mistake was egregious, that Yahweh still showed some mercy toward David by giving David King Solomon through Bathsheba. Now, we find here that David named his son Solomon. Solomon means peaceful. You know, in many ways, I believe peaceful is a good word to describe Solomon, to describe his reign as king over the nation of Israel. You know, for the most part, the nation of Israel was at peace during Solomon's reign. Under David, there was more conflict, there was more strife. Or much of that conflict, much of that strife ended during the time of King Solomon. Where Solomon himself was more of a peaceful man, we know that David, in many, many ways, was a man of war, We're not Solomon. Solomon was not a man of war, not for the most part. He was a very peaceful man. We also see here an intriguing truth, and that is that Solomon received a different name through Nathan the prophet. How many here knew that Solomon had a different name? That Yahweh proposed and gave Solomon a different name from what David gave. So Jedidiah was the name that Yahweh gave, and Jedidiah means the beloved of Yahweh. The beloved of Yahweh, Jedidiah. Now, why David did not use this name, the Bible does not say. It's only conjecture as to why we find Solomon, not Jedidiah. Maybe it wasn't a name. Maybe it was simply an expression of Yahweh's love for Solomon. The fact is, what we find here through the meaning of Solomon or Jedidiah, again, the beloved of Yahweh, shows that Yahweh had a very special place for Solomon from the very, very beginning. You know, as we know, Solomon did some great things for Yahweh, including building a temple. Did some many, many great things. And in many ways, you know, this was the uh, high point for Israel. Israel, this was a zenith. This was the, the uh, climax, if you will, of Israel as a nation. You know, as we see in 1 Kings 3 verse 3, while Solomon was not perfect, he had a heart to serve Yahweh. And this is One of those things that we really need to learn and, I believe, strive to adopt, this yearning to please Yahweh, this yearning to do what was right. And Solomon had this. Solomon had this desire to follow Yahweh, to really go the full way. But we know in the end, again, he fell short. But that wasn't true for most of his life. Most of his life, he was a good man. And he really, honestly desired to do right. And we see this. So 1 Kings 3, starting in verse 3, it says, And Solomon loved Yahweh, walking in the statues of David his father. And so we see when, when he began his reign, he began his ministry as king, that he walked in the ways of David. It says only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. We're going to talk more about those high places in just a moment. And the king went to Gibeon. To sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. A thousand offerings did Solomon offer upon the altar. In Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, Ask what I shall give thee. Ask what I shall give thee. So we find here that Solomon loved Yahweh, it is that Solomon loved Yahweh, wanted to do right. And it says here that. Solomon did as David did before him. You know, so many people, they look at Solomon's, the end of his life and what he did in the end, they don't focus on what he did before this. You know, the only thing he was guilty of here, scripture says, is he was worshiping in the high place or in the high places. I want to talk just a little bit about these high places where the phrase high place, this comes from the Hebrew, bamah, bamah. According to the Wycliffe Bible commentary, the word Bamah is from an ancient Canaanite word referring to a place of elevation where the Canaanites would worship their mighty ones, Bema. It was a high place. It was literally a high place. You know, we saw an example of this in our last trip to Israel. Here's a photo. This uh, location of Bethsaida, not too far from the Sea of Galilee. And here there are still remains of these relics of these These ancient pagan idols that they would worship in these high places. Whereas places like this where Solomon would worship. But in Solomon's case, it's important to realize that there was a distinction. There was a separation what Solomon was doing and what these Canaanite pagans were doing. Solomon was there to worship Yahweh. Solomon was not there worshiping these Canaanite deities, these Canaanite mighty ones. He was there worshiping Yahweh and only Yahweh. And that's an important point to understand. But again, the problem is he was worshiping where the Canaanites were worshiping. Because they too were worshiping in the high places. You know, this is one reason why I uh, would not worship. Why I would not attend worship in a church with pagan symbols. Whether it's the cross or the crucifix or the steeples or, or the pagan images or whatever it is. We must ensure that where we're worshiping also is Kodesh is also holy to our father in heaven. So again, as we see here for Solomon, wasn't the worship, but it was where he was worshiping. But only in this way did he deviate from Yahweh's word. Only in this way, every other way we find here that he did and he served and he worshiped as David, his father before him. Now, even though he fell a bit short by worshiping the high places, we know that his heart was right. And because of this, as we see in verse 5, Yahweh came to Solomon in a dream, asking what he would give him. And I believe that this was a turning point. This was a turning point within Solomon's life. This, is, this was what changed the direction of his life. So I want to read this passage. And we're going to read from scripture here. So this is 1 Kings 3 1 Kings 3. And again, we see Yahweh's communication here with this incredible man, really. This man who early on sought very much to focus and to please Yahweh. So we find here in 1 Kings 3. And I want to start in verse 6. It said, And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David. My father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in a brightness of heart with thee. And that hast kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to set on the throne as it is this day. You know, Solomon recognized that there was a connection, just as a quick side note, there was a connection between obedience and blessings. And, you know, that same connection exists today when we obey Yahweh. And, you know, I can look in my life, and I can see so many examples, so many blessings, not because of me, not because of anything I've done great, but because of the blessings that Yahweh gives when people honor him. And I really do believe that that is such a strong connection, such a strong principle we find in Scripture. When we obey Yahweh, he blesses us. But that means that we obey him in all ways. Now verse 7 says, And now Yahweh my Elohim, thou hast made my servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. You know this, and we'll talk about this, but this shows incredible humility by King Solomon. You'll see he realized that he was not yet equipped to really do what he had to do as king. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? And verse 10 says, And the speech pleased Yahweh that Solomon had asked for this thing. And Elohim said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and not asked... For thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Behold I have done according to thy words. Lo I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have given also given thee that thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that thou shalt not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in all my ways to keep my ordinances and my commandments, as a father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. So we find here Solomon's response to Yahweh. And I think the one word for me that stands out is humility. Solomon was humbled. When Solomon began his reign as king, he was humbled. He was meek. You know, this is one of the most important attributes we can have, I believe, as a, as a believer, as a believer in the Messiah. You know, our father values a person who's humbled. He values someone who's meek. He's, he values someone who realizes that he or she is is um, not the center of the universe, that they need to humble themselves. You know, in fact, Solomon would later write this in Proverbs 11, verse 2. He says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. You know, there's a connection between humility and wisdom. And the reason and and the connection, I believe, is this. When we're humbled, we're willing to admit fault, we're willing to learn, we're willing to grow, and we're willing to change. Now, this is not true, though, about pride. He says here that pride leads to disgrace or shame. You know, we also know from Proverbs that pride is one of the seven sins that Yahweh abhors. Think about that for just a moment. Think about that for just a moment. Consider that pride is one of those seven sins that Yahweh abhors, that he finds as an abomination. You know, this is a very serious matter when he says that he abhors something. That he defines something as an abomination. Now, have you ever wondered why he finds pride so appalling? Why he finds pride so loathsome? Well, for me, the answer is real simple. A person full of pride is unable to see their wrong. They're unable to see their fault. They're unable to see their error. And when we can't see our own fault, we can't change. And that is why he's appalled at pride. Well, let's get back to Solomon. Solomon. We see here that he began humbled. You know, he realized he was young. This is a boy there. I think he was probably more than just a young boy, but a young man. He realized he realized that he was not equipped, that he was not equipped to lead the nation of Israel. We see here that he asked Yahweh for an understanding heart. He realized the need for wisdom. He realized the need for again an understanding heart. Now we see here that this pleased Yahweh. Yahweh was pleased with his request. He didn't ask, as we see here, for riches or for the life of his enemies or for a long life. No, he said, I want wisdom so that I can lead your people. And Yahweh blessed this man with incredible wisdom. But he also blessed him with incredible wealth incredible prestige and incredible honor. So much so that Yahweh promised him that there would be No man greater before or after King Solomon. And we certainly know that Yahshua was greater, but, but he shows just how exalted and how great and how incredible this man would be during his lifetime. We also find here the wisdom, the wisdom of King Solomon again, that he blessed him. You know, as I've mentioned, Solomon's reign really marked the high point for the nation of Israel. It was more prosperous, more successful, more influential than the kingdom, even under King David. It was a great time to be an Israelite, a great time to be part of the Israelite nation under King Solomon. It was an incredible time. Now, as we see in First Kings 4, verse 20, Israel's boundaries were the greatest during King Solomon. I want to share this verse, and I'm going to share a chart showing this. First Kings 4, 20 through 21 it says, Judah and Israel were many as the sand which is by the seed, sea in multitude, eating and drinking, making merry. And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms, from the river unto the land of the Philistines and into the border of Egypt. And they brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. You know, it says here that Judah and Israel were what? It says they were many or they were numerous. I want to point out two things here. Number one, it mentions both Israel and Judah separately. Now, even though Judah and Israel were one nation under Solomon, we know that. We already see here that there was some sort of segregation between the southern and the northern kingdoms, even at this time. It was an understanding that there were two kingdoms, but still one nation. Number two, we see here that the nation of Israel had grown. They had grown as a nation. They had grown as a, as a, a, a people. And by the way, this also extended into, uh, for the economy. The economy of Israel was phenomenal during this time. We also see here that the actual borders and influence was the greatest under King Solomon. And this really is, is uh, remarkable when you realize how it changed between David and Solomon. There was just a significant change between David and Solomon and the growth and the influence that they had. In fact, here's a map. Here's a map. Hopefully they can hear me online. I'll try to speak in the mic here. Here is the territory of Israel before David as king. Here's after David and here's with Solomon. So we see here the growth. The growth not only of David but then after David we see that the the influence of Israel grew Significantly, and again, this was because of Solomon. Solomon was a wise king, and we see here that the world, the nations around Israel, would come to King Solomon. And we know the stories. I'm not going to read those today, but she, uh, the Queen of Sheba, and others coming to to hear Solomon speak because he was so wise. Well, you know, he was also a builder. We see some examples of this. First Kings, First Kings nine fifteen through nineteen. It says, and this is the reason of the levy or the taxes which King Solomon raised, for to build the house of Yahweh, the the temple, and his own house, and Milo, and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor, and Megiddo, and Gezer. For Pharaoh, king of Egypt had gone up and taken Gezer and burnt it with fire and slain the Canaanites that dwelt in the city, and given it for a present unto his daughter Solomon's wife. You know, many of the, uh, just real quickly, many of the Relationships, the wives of Solomon. We'll talk more about the wives as we get through the near the end of this message. But it was political. It was for stability of the nation. And Solomon built Gizer and Bethhoron, and neither and Beloth, and Tadmor in the wilderness in the land. And all the cities, a store that Solomon had in the cities for the chariots and the cities for the horsemen. And that which Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and in Lebanon and in all the land of his dominion. we see here that Solomon, through taxation, raised funds for the purpose of expansion, the purpose of building. Now, this included, as we see here, the temple, the house of Yahweh. This included, it says, the Milo and also the walls of Jerusalem. Now, the Milo, we all understand the temple. We all understand the walls of Jerusalem. I think we understand that. Some people don't realize what the Milo is. This is important. I've seen the Milo. I've seen the Milo in Israel, so it's just a remarkable thing to witness and and see firsthand. But the Milo here, this was a ravine that Solomon filled, and it connected the city of David with Yofel. Yofel is a a mountain just south of the uh, Temple Mount, as we see it in Israel today. And by doing this, he enlarged the city of David to include the Yofel area by again connecting that, that uh, the, the milo, by filling that in. In fact, you can see today, when you go there, there's these, the, the rocks are very different. And the milo as it is in the in the uh, on the sides is different. And they say that dates back to the time of Solomon, the, the same kind of stones that they would have used. You know, as we understand it here, this ministry the Temple Mount we see today in Jerusalem, this was likely Fortress Antonia. I've given messages on this, I'm not going to, really uh, give a lot of I'm not going to give any evidence you'll have to go back and watch the videos but we believe it's Fortress Antonia just uh, south of the uh, Temple Mount and no one disputes the fact that the city of David is south of the Temple Mount or we believe that the temple stood at the Ophel Mount which is again south about 600 feet to be exact of the old uh, old city or the uh, Temple Mount area now, we also see here that he built and fortified other cities. We, uh, he uh, built, fortified Hazor, or Hazor, Megiddo, which, by the way, we were able to visit both locations during our last trip to Israel. You know, Megiddo is just a phenomenal place to visit, by the way. I, we know uh, from archaeology that there's uh, remains at Megiddo dating to the time of Solomon. Even now, you can go and see remains that are that are known to have existed during Solomon's time. In fact, they say that Megiddo, the uh, historical understanding is it's about 26 layers of civilization. Think about that. 26 layers of civilization. You know, someone would come along and, and they would build and they were conquered and you had the ruins and another person would come, they would conquer and you had the ruins, so on and so forth. 26 layers of civilizations at Tel Megiddo and it's such a great place to visit by the way because also Tel Megiddo I never really understood this until going so there you have the Tel Megiddo and Tel is a is a a mound essentially that's made artificially and again in this case it was all the layers of civilizations and then you have the Jezreel Valley that sets right beneath it of course the Jezreel Valley is where the armies of the earth will meet it says to gather against Jerusalem as we see in Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 14. So, you know, it's a very, very significant place historically and prophetically. And we know that Solomon, as we see here, he fortified these areas. This was a major, major... And by the way, one reason why Megiddo was so important is it was the trading route. It was a trading route going from Egypt into the Mediterranean. And the roads, as I understand it, I could be wrong with this, but what I've read anyway, the actual paved roads that you travel on now, are the historical roads that existed in ancient times. In fact, just as a real quick note since I'm talking about Israel, we were uh, going to look at the road of Damascus, you know, where Paul had his uh, fell off his horse and you know, I'm looking and the archaeologist says, "There it is." And I saw this big paved road going into Syria. And so again, he says this is the same road. This is you know, they've just paved over it, which is really just Remarkable when you think about all these ancient cities, and they would just pave over these ancient paths. And so, uh, anyway, there's some information about Israel. But, but um, Solomon, again, he was, he was instrumental in some of these cities. Hazor, you know, Hazor's really neat because you can actually see where uh, they would burn they, they, uh, burned the city under the uh, time of Joshua. So, just so, so rich in history, and we find here that Solomon had a part in this. Now, we find a glimpse. Glimpse of Solomon's greatness in 1 Kings 10. 1 Kings 10, 23 and verse 27. It says, so King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. So he was phenomenal. He was great. Goes on to say in verse 27, and the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones. It was ordinary. There was so much of this to be found in Jerusalem, just like a common stone, silver. And cedars made he to be as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. So we find here just a glimpse of Solomon's wealth. We find a glimpse of his wisdom, of his greatness. He was so great, it says here, that he made silver look like just, a, again, an ordinary stone. You know, remember that Jerusalem was a grand, uh, grand jewel of, of, of Israel. Jerusalem was. Everything was ornate under King Solomon. There was no city greater. So again, this uh, further shows the prominence that Israel had under this remarkable man, under Solomon's reign. And we know the main reason for Solomon's wisdom, and I want to talk a little bit about this because it's important to recognize the source. And we know the source of Solomon's wisdom wasn't his, what he did. It was Yahweh, was his blessings. And it talks about that in verse 29. 1 Kings twenty-nine thirty, and then 32 through 34 says, And Elohim gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much, so in abundance, in largeness of heart, even as a sand that is On the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled. The wisdom of the children of the east country. And all the wisdom of Egypt. And these areas were known for great wisdom. Great insight. But even though they were great. We find that Solomon's wisdom. Solomon's understanding was even greater. In verse uh, 32 it says. And he spoke 3,000 proverbs. You know I wish we would have. We would have some of those proverbs. I think we have some of them obviously. But there's many many more out there. Three Thousand proverbs and songs were a thousand and five. So we don't have all of Solomon's work today. There's much out there that we don't have. And it says he spake of trees from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop, the springs out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of fowl and of creeping things and of fishes. You know, he understood these natural items why? Because Yahweh again gave, them, gave him this ability. And it says, And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth, which had heard of his wisdom. So we see the source here of Solomon's wisdom. It says here that Yahweh gave him great wisdom, that Yahweh gave him understanding. Again, it wasn't by his intellect. It's not something Solomon did. His wisdom surpassed, it says, all others, including those of the East Country and also of Egypt. Just as a side note, the East Country here, many believe this refers to Babylon, Persian, Arabia. All these, this was east of Jerusalem, and all of these places were known for their wisdom, for their understanding. Again, that was Babylon, Persian, Arabia. You know, the point here is that nobody was like Solomon. Nobody had the insight, nobody had the understanding, nobody had the wisdom. That this man was given. Yahweh blessed him beyond measure and gave him everything a man could possibly want. Imagine being Solomon, just for a moment, you know, having this incredible insight, not only just in life, but even in in animals and the natural world. He understood it. Yahweh supernaturally gave this man wisdom in so many ways, and he had riches, he had honor, he had prestige. Everything you could imagine Solomon had. But it, it, again, it all came from the same source. And besides his wisdom, the thing that Solomon is most well known for is a temple. We all know that the first temple was King Solomon. And this is a thing history remembers King Solomon of more than anything else, is a is temple. Or, you know, we could spend the entire message speaking about the temple. I'm not going to do that. I want to focus on what happened at the end. I want to focus on what happened when he was finished with the temple, and I want to focus on the dedication of the temple because this is this is just amazing. The description we find here. So, Second Chronicles seven, one through four. So, this is what happened after the temple was finished and at the dedication. It says, now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven. So Yahweh sent here supernatural fire from heaven. At this point, at this time, it says, and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of Yahweh filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the house of Yahweh because the glory of Yahweh had filled Yahweh's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of Yahweh upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshipped and praised Yahweh, saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before Yahweh. You know, what an incredible, what an incredible message, what an incredible depiction we find here, illustration Again, can you imagine standing there this moment and seeing what we find within this passage? You know, again, keep in mind that Solomon had just finished the dedication of the temple. He was dedicating the temple to Yahweh. And, and upon the completion of this, we find here that fire came down from heaven. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifices that, that they were offering before Yahweh. You know, this reminds me of the story of Elijah or Elias. We know there what happened. You know, we know that Elijah took the bull and put the water and the wood, and Yahweh consumed it all to show that he was supreme, to show that he was the mighty one. And we see here that Yahweh is doing like manner. Yahweh is consuming these sacrifices to show that he's with Israel and that he's still supreme. You know, we also see here that Yahweh's glory filled the temple. It filled the temple that Solomon built. You know, we see a similar example to this in Leviticus 9, verse 24. I'm not going to turn there. But this is when Moses finished the tabernacle, which was also a dwelling place for Almighty Yahweh. And upon the completion of this, we find in Scripture that Yahweh's glory filled this place. Again, can you imagine being somebody witnessing this event? I just don't think there's words to describe what we find here. Now, what exactly is the glory of Yahweh? I want to talk just a a few moments about this. The word glory comes from the Hebrew kabod. It refers to the manifestation of Yahweh's glory, his splendor. Now, most people, many people, use the word Shekinah to represent Yahweh's glory. You know, to the surprise of many, this word is actually absent from Scripture. Shekinah does not appear in Scripture. Judaism came up with this term, and then Christianity later adopted this word to describe Yahweh's glory. Now, some say it's connected to mysticism, and maybe it is through Judaism. Christianity, I think, simply uses it for Yahweh's glory. I don't have a big issue with it, but it is kind of important to realize this is not in Scripture. Kabo, that's what we find is Yahweh's splendor, Yahweh's glory. So we see here that the manifestation of Yahweh's glory was so great. The scripture says that the priests could no longer enter into the temple. They had to vacate the premises because Yahweh moved in. Yahweh's glory was was so thick and rich within the glory that they had to to back away. They had to leave. Again, you know, just try to imagine being there. Imagine seeing this even from a distance, seeing Solomon dedicate this, this, this. such a significant event in Israel's history. And then seeing supernaturally fire coming down from heaven and consuming the sacrifices. I'm sure just that alone was just mind-blowing for those there observing this event. And then after that, you see Yahweh's glory, this brightness, I believe, filling the temple. So much so that the people, they, the, the priests had to vacate the, the, the temple. Because they, you know, they could not stand in the midst of Yahweh's glory. It must have been a phenomenal sight to see, a phenomenal sight to witness Yahweh's glory. So how did the people respond when they saw this? What was the reaction of those there? And we find here that the people bowed themselves to the ground. They bowed themselves, they humbled themselves, and they worshipped him. They worshipped Yahweh, saying that he is good and his mercy endures forever. You know, this concept of Yahweh's mercy is so important. I'm a big believer in Yahweh's mercy, His compassion. You know, think about where mankind would be today if not for His mercy. If not for His mercy, I can tell you where mankind would be. Mankind would not exist. That's where mankind would be. If not for His mercy to Noah, there would be no human race. Yahweh showed mercy to Noah. Yahweh showed grace to Noah because Noah was righteous. But if not for that mercy, if not for his grace, there would be no human race today. You know, I truly believe that Yahweh's grace and compassion is vastly greater than ours. I believe that the vast majority of us, probably all of us, if we were in Yahweh's position, we would have wiped mankind out a long time ago. But that's not our Father in heaven. He's one of mercy. He's one of compassion. He's one who shows pity to those who fear and who love him. And we can see this here, that he showed mercy. And the people recognized the mercy that Yahweh showed. You know, many people seem to focus on Yahweh's wrath and judgment in the Old Testament. They have this, again, crude picture of his vindictiveness. That he was out for blood. And there was no compassion But, you know, we read even in the book of Isaiah today, in the Bible study. Yahweh says, come, let us reason together. You see, Yahweh wanted to bless Israel. He wants to bless his people today. He gave his only son so that we might have the hope of eternal life, as we see in John 3, verse 16. Yahweh wants to see us succeed. Yahweh wants to show mercy. Yahweh wants to show grace. Yahweh wants to show compassion. Now, we know there's a flip side. We know that when we deliberately disobey that there are consequences to that disobedience. But we also know that when we humbly repent, when we humbly turn to him, when we recognize our faults, when we, when we are showing meekness, that Yahweh is one to forgive. And that's the message we find here, that Yahweh is plenteous in mercy, that Yahweh is plenteous in compassion, that Yahweh is plenteous in loving kindness. Now, starting in verse 12, we see that Yahweh appears before Solomon a second time and I want to read this from Scripture. It says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And again, we see here Yahweh's response to King Solomon. 2 Chronicles 7, or verse 11. It says, Thus Solomon finished the house of Yahweh and the king's house, and all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of Yahweh and in his own house, he prosperously affected. And Yahweh appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself or in house of sacrifice. So he accepted what Solomon built. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send the pestilence among my, my people... If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And I believe that that promise exists for all nations and all peoples. All peoples and all nations who will humbly submit and repent to their Father in heaven. Verse 15, now mine eyes shall be open and my ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. So there was a special connection we see here with the temple. Yahweh was present. And he said he would hear when they prayed in this very important place. It says, for now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name, and just notice the references to name, my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. And as for thee, if thou wilt walk before me as David, thy father, walked, and do according to all that I commanded thee, and shall observe my statutes and my judgments, then will I establish the throne of thy kingdom according as I have a coveted, where I have promised with David, thy father, saying, There shall not fall thee a man to be ruler in Israel. And if you, but if you turn away, you see, there's always another side. Yahweh is there to fulfill his agreement, but there's always another side. He says, but if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you and shall go and serve other mighty ones and worship them, then will I pluck them up by the roots of my land, which I have given them. And this house, which I have sanctified for my name, will I cast out of my sight, And I will make it to be a proverb and a byword among all nations. And that's precisely what happened historically. We don't see the temple today. Some claim that there's evidence. Maybe there is under the city of David. But we don't know and we don't certainly see it. Verse 21 and... This house which is high shall be an astonishment to every one that passes by it, so that they shall say, Why hath Yahweh done thus unto this land and unto this house? And it shall be answered, Because they forsook Yahweh Elohim of their fathers, which brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other mighty ones, and worshipped them and served them. Therefore hath he brought all this evil upon them. So what does Yahweh here say to Solomon? What's his message? Well, Number one, we see here that he accepts the temple as a place of worship. And he says that he will hear their prayers. He will be with them. Number two, he promises blessings for those who follow him, those who keep his commandments, those who who strive to, to follow him in all ways. Number three, we find here that he lays out the punishment for those who defy him. You know, Yahweh is a merciful, mighty one. We know that. But when we deliberately, willfully disobey him, there are consequences, and we find those here. Now, many are familiar with verse 14. I want to read that one more time. It says If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. This is a very well-known passage. We hear this often within even the churches. We hear this spoken often by those who believe in the Bible. They recognize that there's something very unique, something very special about this promise. Well, I want to focus for us on two things. Number one, the importance of Yahweh's name. And number two, Yahweh healing a nation. You know, we know that Yahweh's name is very important to him. We see evidence throughout Scripture. It's quite a list. In the Bible, this comes actually from the RSB chart, I think it's in Hebrews. But we're told to bless his name. We're told to call upon his name. We're told to confess his name, to declare his name, to exalt his name, to glorify his name, to honor his name, to magnify his name, to remember his name, to sing to his name, and to trust in his name. Yahweh's name is important. Yahweh's name is so important to him that we honor and that we call upon this name. You know, we also see in Revelation 14.1 that it's Yahweh's name that's going to be placed upon the foreheads of those who, who follow him. It's going to serve as a seal, a sign of protection. We also know, for those who, who may not know, everybody knows here, though I'm sure positive. I'm sure I could quiz everybody, everybody 100% on this, but Yahweh's name appears 6,823 times in the Old Testament. That's quite a few times. You know, we were talking in the Bible study this morning how often to see maybe one word appear just once, where Yahweh's name appears 6,823 times. It's a lot more than once. You know, something that as believers uh, we're to really heed to, we're to see this significance through the numerous times we find his name within the text. You know, no wonder why we see here that Israel called, was called by Yahweh's name. Now, the other thing we find here is this promise of healing a land when a nation would repent and turn to him. You know, while I believe that we've probably gone too far as a nation to repent, I believe it's still important as believers that we pray for this nation. I believe it's important that we pray for this nation. I believe it's important that we pray for the leaders of this nation, that Yahweh would still give them guidance. No matter what we believe, it's always important to maintain hope, always important to pray. So I would encourage everybody to think about this passage and to keep this nation in prayer. Pray for the success of this nation, but most importantly, pray that this nation would turn to Yahweh and pray that this nation would, would, would seek Yahweh's wisdom. And I believe that Yahweh hears and listens to the prayers of the saints, those who call upon Yahweh's name. I do. You know, Scripture says, and we actually see it in the Olivet Prophecy, we see there in the Olivet Prophecy that Joshua said, if not for the elect's sake, that all flesh would be destroyed. Yahweh cares about the elect. He cares about the saints. He cares about his people. And I believe that he values the prayers of his people. So I would encourage everybody to pray for this nation. You know, this nation's in turbulent times, and I believe it's going to probably get more turbulent, certainly with time. And it's important that we are aware and that we're praying for Yahweh's blessings upon his people and for Yahweh's wisdom upon this nation. You know, I believe that this is also true on a personal level. As Yahweh forgave those in the Old Testament who sincerely humbled themselves before him, he does the same now. You know, we know from Scripture, Yahweh says that if He says that if we approach him, that if we, if we humbly ask for forgiveness, that he's going to forgive us. As long as it's humbled and as long as it's sincere, he's going to forgive us. You know, over the years, I've heard people say things like, I've just done too many things. I've gone too far. I could never be found. I could never find forgiveness. I could never find mercy. I've just done way, way too much. I believe we can be very thankful that we serve a mighty one who is merciful, who is compassionate, who will forgive. I mean, I can give many, many examples in Scripture. You know, the one example we saw in the Bible study today, one of my favorite passages, In Isaiah 1, it says, come now, let us reason together. Yahweh just earlier before that called Israel by the names of Sodom and Gomorrah because they were such an apostate situation. But even through their apostasy, Yahweh said, come now, let us reason together. Let us consider what is happening. Let us be, and he says that if you repent, if you turn from your ways, I'm going to wash away your sins. It's going to be white as snow. Now, we know that that never happened. But Yahweh is a mighty one of forgiveness, one of love, one of mercy. The Bible promises that if we come before him with a sincere remorse that he will never turn us away. Yahweh is a father who values his children. Our Father in heaven is no different. Now on the other hand, for those who knowingly rebel, deliberately rebel, we find here that Yahweh is not going to hold that person guiltless. He's not going to hold that nation guiltless. When the sins are done deliberately, knowingly, without repentance. They're going to be held accountable to their sin in this case. So again, as we see in Scripture, Solomon had many moments of triumph, many moments of blessings, many moments of just incredible, incredible insights. But with that being said, we also know that, sadly, this man fell miserably short in the end. It's, 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 you know, it's, just, um, it's heartbreaking to see such a such a wonderful man, such an incredible man, such a remarkable man, falls so far from grace. We see this in 1 Kings. First Kings gives an account eleven of how far Solomon went. First Kings eleven, one through three says, But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. One of the nations, of the nations, concerning which Yahweh said unto the children of Israel, you should not go in to them, neither shall they come in unto you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their mighty one, Solomon, clave unto these in love. That's what scripture says. And And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart says here, the Solomon loved many strange women. Strange, what does that mean? Or the word strange refers to foreign. They were foreigners. They weren't believers. They weren't Israelite, but they weren't believers, and that's the main point. You know, we know that Yahweh commanded Israel not to marry with these nations. We see an example of this in Deuteronomy 7. He says, don't marry with these Canaanite nations, with these nations, because when you do, they're going to turn your heart away from me. Solomon is his clave to these and love. And because of that, we also see here that, that they pulled his heart away from Yahweh. You know, Yahweh's always wanted, he's required, he's mandated, in fact, that believers of all ages marry other believers. To marry a non-believer is wrong scripturally. We see this in the Old Testament. We also see it in the New Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. He says there that we are to only marry within the Messiah. But he uses that phrase, within the Messiah. In other words, we're to marry only within the faith. We're not to marry outside the faith. Because when we do so, they pull our hearts away from Almighty Yahweh. Now, why do you suppose Yahweh is so concerned about this? Or again, it's pretty simple. They pull our hearts, they, they pull us away. And I've seen this. You know, I've seen this happen. I've seen believers marry unbelievers. And then I've seen those same believers forsake Scripture, forsake Yahweh's Word. They want to please their wife. I'm going to tell you, and I think anybody who's married, they know this to be true. There is nobody more influential in your life than your spouse. That's just the way it is. And now some people may say that's not the case. So that's the way it should be. Your spouse should be your best friend. I know Jennifer is for me, and I know that nobody's more influential than she is. So it's important that we make sure that we marry within the faith. It also says here that he married six, 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's quite a number. It's amazing how he could marry such a large number of women. It's also remarkable here that he did this knowing that Yahweh commanded him not to. Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen speaks to a king. And it says this, he must not take many wives. Seems pretty simple, right? Or his heart will be led astray. So it's not only about taking the right wives, or wife, really, but also the number, the sheer number goes on to say he must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold Now, as we know Solomon was actually guilty of both of these infractions both of these commandments he was certainly infraction or in violation of the many wives I think he holds a record on that I don't know of anyone else has a thousand wives 300 concubines by the way some people they get real confused with concubines and it is kind of confusing but um, the way I look at and understand concubines is they were, they were still a wife, but of le- lesser status. It's kind of a, a legal term, if you will, a wife, but of lesser status. But it wasn't adultery. It, it, it was a legitimate union. But we know that, not to get off the topic here, but we know that Yahshua came and he straightened all that out because he says the two shall be one flesh. He didn't say the three or the four or the five or the thousand shall become one flesh. He said the two shall be one flesh. You know, I think Yahweh allowed, or it says, you know, Yahweh allowed certain things because of the hardness of man's heart. But Yahshua came to, to realign mankind to truth. And one of the things Yahshua said is, Again, the two shall become one flesh, not the thousand, not the many as we find here. But the lesson here is that these women pulled, just as we find some from scripture. These women pulled Solomon's heart away from Yahweh. Now, what did, what did Solomon do exactly? We see some many examples of this, and this is in 1 Kings. So I'm going to pull the scripture out again and read this directly from scripture. But here we find in 1 Kings 11, the many violations that Solomon was guilty of. And they are numerable. They are many. It's just amazing. So verse 4, and we're going to read 4 through 13, it says, For it came to pass when Solomon was old. Now, it's one thing I do take comfort in because it seems to indicate when Solomon was old, he lost his wisdom. He lost some of that discretion. I'm looking for anything to save poor Solomon. When Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other mighty ones, and his heart was not perfect with Yahweh, his Elohim, as was the heart of David, his father. For Solomon went after Asherah, the Elohim of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil on the side of Yahweh, and he went not fully after Yahweh, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Moloch, can you imagine, Moloch, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives all 1000 which burn incense and sacrifice unto their mighty ones. And Yahweh was angry with Solomon because his heart was not or turned from Yahweh Elohim of Israel which had appeared unto him twice and had committed or commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other mighty ones but he kept not that which Yahweh commanded. Wherefore, Yahweh said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant. Notwithstanding in thy days, I will not do it for David, thy father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Albeit I will not rend it away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to the son for David, my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake which I have chosen. And then in verse 14, actually we're going to stop there, verse 13. So we find that even through all this, Yahweh still showed some compassion just as a side note, that he would not rip the, all the tribes. We know that he was allowed in the end to keep Benjamin and Judah and then some of Levi. But it says here when Solomon was old that his wives, his foreign wives, turned away his heart from Yahweh. Now, again, I, I believe that age probably played a role in Solomon's downfall, that as he got older, that discretion left, and he committed these grievous sins. You know, because of this, I do wonder, though, if maybe, maybe Yahweh might show some mercy to Solomon. I don't know. Some people I've met, they're confident that he will receive some mercy and some pardon, if you will. I'm not so sure. I hope he does. But it's just as we see throughout Solomon's life, he did some incredible things. But you know, Scripture also says it's not what we do in the beginning, it's what we do in the end. That's kind of a scary thought. I don't know if you've ever considered that. You know, Scripture in Ezekiel says that we can live righteously all our days, but if we turn away in the end, that we're going to be judged accordingly. It also says that if a wicked man turns away from his wickedness to righteousness, that he will receive mercy. But that's something to be aware of, something to be cognizant of. Some people believe that they kind of weigh the good and the bad. And maybe they make mistakes in the end. But, you know, Scripture does say what it says. And it says that Yahweh uh, judges based on what we do at the end. But anyway, we see here that when he was old... That this began. You know, what we know for sure is that his heart was not right with Yahweh at this point within his life. It was not right. And he made some major, major compromises for his many strange wives. Including not only sanctioning pagan worship, but he himself being complacent with it. And that is a very, very serious allegation. But it's a true allegation, we find it. In verse 7, we find that he actually built high places to many of these strange wives, these deities that they worshipped, including Molech. You know, Yahweh abhorred the worship of Molech. We know that part of the worship of Molech included sacrificing children through the fires. They would place the children on the arms of this deity, and then the child, the corpse, would fall into the fires of Molech. It was a gruesome thing. They would play drums and whatnot to drown out the noise. But they would worship, and Solomon, right there near Jerusalem, allowed this worship to, to occur. You know, it's always hard, been hard for me to understand how someone like Solomon was blessed in so many great ways and yet made so many horrible decisions near the end If nothing else, I believe one of the lessons we find here is this. Wisdom alone is not enough. Wisdom alone is not enough. If we're going to be found worthy, we must obey the one we worship. Because even if you have all the wisdom of Solomon, you can still be led astray in the end. So that's one of the most valuable lessons I believe we find here in this book. We can have all the wisdom in the world. We can exceed the wisdom of so many. But if we become prideful as... Solomon may have or maybe just lose that discretion we can find ourselves in the same position as Solomon you know compromise while I um, believe that certainly his age played a role in this it's also important to realize that Solomon's compromise began years before he was old Solomon began to compromise early on when he began to marry these foreign wives. You see, he knew what Scripture said, but he compromised, and 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 he compromised compromised some more. Until he was old, he lost his discretion, and that compromise pulled him away from Scripture. So that's a very important lesson for us as believers. You know, maybe he felt his wisdom would be enough to prevent him from going astray. You know, whatever the reason or rationale he had did not end well for Solomon. And it will not end well for anybody who goes his path in the end. So again, it's a very tragic end for such a great man. But this is the story of Solomon. The rise and fall of Solomon. The greatness that this man had, the greatness that this man showed, the greatness that he achieved, and the failure that he saw near the very end. So what are some of the lessons, some of the specific lessons we can glean? I want to share just a few with you, four to be exact. So number one, if we seek Yahweh with a loving and humbled heart, he will bless us and not forsake us. It's a really important lesson. Simple, right? But we must approach him loving and humbly. Number two, we should always be mindful of those things that we pray for and make sure that our requests are in harmony with Yahweh's word. You know, make sure that, as Solomon did, and this is one of the good lessons from Solomon, Solomon did not pray for riches, Solomon did not pray for long life, Solomon did not pray for his uh, enemies, against his enemies. Solomon prayed for wisdom. Solomon prayed for wisdom. That was in line with Yahweh's will. So we need to make sure that when we pray, when we ask for something, that it's aligned with, with Yahweh's will. Number three, oftentimes our actions have long-term consequences, even when unforeseen. Therefore, we should always strive to follow Yahweh's word, even from our youth. Again, many of these relationships that Solomon engaged in, many of these marriages, occurred very early on, I believe, in in his reign. And he was fine through most of his life. He was fine through most of his reign. But over time, these relationships caught up with him when he was old. So even those things we do when we're young, eventually will catch up with us when we're old or when we're older. And the last one here is number four. If we ever allow anything to come before us in Yahweh, including wisdom, we may ruin the most important relationship we have in this life. Well, I pray that this message has been a blessing to you. You know, Solomon's life offers many, many valuable lessons, both good and bad. In fact, we, all, we see more good than bad. But most people focus on the bad because it is so horribly awful and, again, so tragic. You know, as believers, I pray that we would learn the lessons we find here, and that we would apply them to our life. That, again, we would make sure that our prayers are in harmony, that we make sure that our actions, our decisions are according to Yahweh's word, so that in the end it doesn't come back to, uh, to um to turn us away from Yahweh, to cause compromise in some way. Because we're here to please Yahweh, we're here to follow Him, we're here to to worship Him. In the end, we're here to achieve eternal life in His kingdom, and we do that by following Him. So again, we have some really great lessons today, some positive, some negative lessons, but I believe that if we follow these lessons, both the good and the bad, that we're going to be found worthy when Yahshua comes. And that's what we should all be striving to achieve, and that's why we're here Every action, every behavior, every thought should be motivated by that goal. And may Yahweh bless you.